We'll be in 1 Timothy 5, uh, 1, 6 through 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, and older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, all in purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to show godliness in their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that you may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied his faith and is worse an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having, the one wife of, um, having been the wife of one husband, having her reputation for good works. If she has brought up children and shown hospi um, hospitality, she has washed the feet of saints, cared for the afflicted, and devoted herself to good work but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips, busybodies, saying that, um, what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give advisory no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan." If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially for those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves its wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except for evidence of two or three witnesses. And those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that they may rest, um, so that the rest may stand in fear. The presence of God in Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without uh, prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water. Uh, and use little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, um, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later, so that all good works are um, conspicuous, conspicuous. Uh, and even those who cannot uh, remain hidden. Let all those who are under a yoke of slaves regard their own masters as worthy all honor, so that the name of God and teaching may not be reviled. Those who are believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon once more. Uh, it seems as though we have a huge chunk of scripture to walk through together. Uh, if you are new, my name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I informed you, if you remember, that we're going to be walking through an entire chapter of 1 Timothy. This is that chapter. And so uh, we'll see how today goes. But nevertheless, thank you so much for joining us in uh, this new season. And we thank Valley Community Church for folding us in. And, uh, and we pray that the gospel would go unhindered. Let's dive in. So if you're familiar with uh, the Peanuts comic strips, there's one where Lucy and Linus are hanging out. And Lucy says to Linus, you can never be a doctor because you don't love mankind enough. Surprised by Lucy, Linus responds by saying, I love mankind, it's people that I can't stand. For many, loving humanity or supporting a cause is a lot easier than loving actual persons. And what we see in chapter 5 going into chapter 6 is a whole bunch of people. The entirety of this chapter is about God's love for people, God's church consisting of people, and the people of God who are to show tremendous love to one another by honoring one another. 
the church has a responsibility to cultivate a culture of honor. And here's what you need to know. Here's your main idea. A culture of honor begins with how we view God, and then it is displayed by the way we honor one another and those outside of the church. Say it one more time. A culture of honor begins with how we view God, and then it is displayed by the way we honor one another and those outside of the church. So let me pray for our time and then we will dig into chapter 5. And what you're going to notice is we're going to take this 50,000-foot view of this chapter. So let me pray, and then we'll dig into our time. Lord, we praise you for today. Lord, this is a new season, a new rhythm, and a new time. Lord, we have a home where your gospel will be preached without hindrance. Therefore, would you give us the grace to abide in Jesus today, to commit to your word, and to repent with grace and not grudgingly. Holy Spirit, would you bring, would you bring us conviction and comfort, and may your glory be made known today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the opening section, this is verses 1 through 8, begins with a general overview of honoring one another. And then what we are going to notice is that Paul specifically addresses widows. That's where we'll spend the majority of our time today. Paul understands that when it comes to a culture of, of honor, it always has to deal with people, with the person next to you. And Paul loved honored and was incredibly thankful for people. In the closing chapter of Romans, uh, that's uh, chapter 16, for instance, Paul lists several people that he is thankful for and honors them by speaking of his love for them and their care toward him. When we combine, for, for example, all of Paul's letters to churches and individuals, such as Timothy, we learn that Paul honors and thanks the Lord for over a hundred people. A culture of honor always begins with how we view God, and it is displayed by the way we honor one another. Therefore, in verses 1 through 8, Paul begins by telling Timothy to honor older saints through encouragement and to honor the younger saints through investment. I'll read a portion of it. You'll see it up on the screen. Paul begins these first two verses, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Timothy, who is a young pastor in the city of Ephesus, doesn't simply pastor and lead the younger generation. He pastors and leads the older saints, too. And he's already receiving a little bit of, a, a little bit of heat because of his youth. We learned that last week. Here, Paul tells him that the older saints are not immune to correction, but there is a way to honor them in this, and that is through encouragement. This is sometimes intimidating, honoring older saints as though they were your father or your mother. For instance, uh, that to me can sometimes be very intimidating because all I think about is when my mom would say my full name, and man, everything, I was alert, I was ready to go, and I also knew that something was wrong, and so <laughs> that I had done something wrong. So when I would hear Marco Antonio, that's when it, like, I just hid. And so to consider that we must correct older saints through encouragement sounds simple, but it isn't exactly easy. Nevertheless, Timothy and us are to honor older saints with encouragement and respect. And I want you to consider this. A culture of honor and respect is not this cultural trend or development. It's actually a biblical foundation. 
Even when an older saint must be corrected, it is not done in a manner that is disrespectful or dishonoring. When an individual, particularly when a young, younger saint does that, that simply means that when they do it that way, when they do it in a disrespectful way, they're really coming from a place of fear and insecurity. Addressing older saints must be done gently and tactfully. It should be a reminder, not a reprimand. Earlier this week, I watched this video of this uh, English football player, and his name is Ian Wright, and in his story, he goes on to describe this one teacher that he had, Mr. Pigden, and he is the one who invested in Ian and taught him how to kick a ball. And uh, so this one day he's at the stadium and they tell him that they have a surprise for him. And his teacher, his elementary teacher, Mr. Pigning, comes up to him and he says, hello, Ian, long time no see. And Ian turns around, he starts tearing up. And the first thing that he does is he takes off his hat. And when you look at the comment section, there is this array of comments saying, man, look at the amount of respect that Ian had for his teacher. We must honor older saints because they are our spiritual parents. Paul knew this well. To the Romans, in that chapter, Romans 16, Paul says, Greet Rufus, one of his boys, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. We need spiritual parents. Additionally, when it comes to the younger saints... They are to treat one another as brothers and sisters. And in this, there's a mixture of respect and friendship and affection, but also caution. I grew up with brothers, and though I love them and have the highest respect for my brothers, there were moments where we horsed around and gave one another a hard time. And that seems to be a cultural norm in the valley. It seems to be a passage of acceptance when it comes to giving one another a hard time. However, here in the text, there is a warning attached where our brotherly and sisterly relationships, they are to be treated with love and respect, friendship and affection, but in all purity. Paul gives Timothy a warning about our friendships and them having nothing improper about them. To be above reproach, we tackled that in chapter 3. By being above reproach, we do not compromise our commitment to Christ. Older saints are to honor younger saints by investing in them and supporting them. Younger saints are to honor older saints with respect and humility. Older saints need the younger saints. See, the younger saints, they bring vitality and a love for life and people and even theology. This can build up the older saints. Younger saints, on the other hand, need our older saints because they need to know that they are loved and respected. See, the younger saints don't so much need theology as much as they need tacos. They need life experience. They need to learn family dynamics. Paul addresses this to Titus. In Titus 2, here's what he says. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. In this section, Paul continues to unpack the way in which older saints invest in the younger generation and the way in which the younger generation responds with respect and humility to the older saints. In the next section, this is really going to be verses 3 through uh, 16, Paul spends a significant amount of time unpacking the honoring of our widows. And I want you to notice that, that Paul really only spends two verses on older and younger saints, but spends about 14 verses writing about widows in the church. And the question might come up, well, why does he spend so much time? I think, in part, because it tells us something important about God, that he has a special place for our women, especially our widows. 
Here, when we consider this entire section, the term widow refers to a woman without a husband, not simply one whose husband has died. Additionally, this term in our day expands to more than just that. That is, Christian women and children who have been abandoned by their spouses and left without family and support. This section tells us that God cares about widows and single moms and our single women. The psalmist gives insight into the heart of God, calling him the father of the fatherless and protector of widows. That's Psalm 68. Why is there such a concern? There's such a concern because they're vulnerable, especially in the first century. And the church ought to honor, love, know, and support our widows. So the questions that come to us is, so how do we honor the widows in our church? How does the church care for widows? Paul provides at least three principles. We're still in verses 1 through 8. First, they are to be cared for by their families first. Paul says it this way, Honor widows who are truly widows. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. Paul says that the way in which we're going to care for our widows is first by seeing that they are cared for by their families first that is, immediate members of their family. Their family are to show godliness by caring for their parents. The phrase, to make some return to their parents, is a way to say one of the ways in which you can pay your parents back is by taking care of them, by folding them into your household. Paul adds that this action pleases God. And I think the Valley does this incredibly well. I know many families in our church who have had to think about how to change the dynamics in their homes as they fold their parents into their household and care for them. This is the, per, excuse me, this is the first principle for caring for our widows. See to it that their families first care for them. Additionally, Paul says that this is so important, especially for the church to understand. We're going to go down to verse 8. He says, this is important, that we must understand that we're going to care for our widows by first seeing that their families care for them. And this is so important, especially for us to understand this, because even pagans have a sense of duty to their relatives. Verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, and it is worse than an unbeliever. He's saying a Christian who refuses, a Christian who does not provide, that's in unwillingness, not he's incapable, not providentially hindered. This is an individual that is unwilling an individual who is unwilling to shoulder the responsibilities of their family is worse than a non-believer. This is not to say, particularly for the men, this is not to say that a man must earn all or most of the family's income, but as the spiritual leaders of their home, one of the ways in which men lead is by working to provide for their families. And that doesn't mean that their wife can't work or earn income. That's not what this says or what Scripture teaches. But when we consider the garden, Adam was created first, was given a job, and then Eve was created for him to help him. And so when Paul says that this individual denies the faith, again, he's talking about an unwillingness, almost slothfulness. To deny providing for family is to deny the faith. Second, Paul says, if a woman is truly a widow, this is the second principle, if a woman is truly a widow, that is, alone and without family, the church now is to provide for her. And there are some qualifiers this, and we'll walk through those in a moment. So he writes that a widow has her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Like, this isn't just a phrase put together where he's just like, yeah, make sure that they're praying. No, this isn't something dismissive. Paul is saying is that though a widow may be without family, she's never alone for the church is her family. 
As a result, this is a woman who is faithful. She has her hope set on God. And as a result, especially having availability, these widows, these women are in a unique position to serve in the ministry of prayer. Praying for people in the church, praying for the leaders in the church, praying for the health and life and vitality of the church. This is not up on the screen, but one author, Susan Hunt, Susan Hunt says it this way, the widow's might is mostly mighty when these women band together as helper defenders in intercessory prayer. Older women who do not have the daily responsibilities of jobs are another power source for intercessory prayer. This ministry is a great need and a tremendous privilege in the church. The church is strengthened through the prayers of our widows. And in this, Paul provides a third principle, which is a a caution. This is toward the end. Paul says, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Kind of a harsh line. Here's what Paul is saying. Here's the caution. He says, first, the widow who should not receive support, who should not receive the care of the church, at least financially, is the one who is self-indulgent. That is, this is a woman who takes pleasure or comfort in things that are not of Jesus. That is, ongoing sin, living for pleasure and luxury rather than having her hope set on God. And what this tells us is that this is a reminder that mercy ministry in the church is not entitlement. The church has a responsibility to filter and to discern people's real needs and commitments. And he adds this uh, in this section. He says, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. True widows are above reproach. Those who are in need demonstrate their character in the way in which they live. A culture of honor begins with how we view God and then is displayed in the way we honor our older saints, our brothers and sisters, and our widows. Next, this is verses 9 through 16. Paul continues in addressing the care of our widows by making sure that we honor them by protecting them. The question is, well, how do we protect our widows? First, we protect our widows by knowing who they are. So let's go to verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. It's not a jab that was just considered older in the first century. Okay, just making sure. Anyway. So how do we protect them? Well, we protect our widows by first knowing who they are. So, so let me ask you, because we have uh, single moms, we have widows uh, in our church, do you know who our widows are? Do you know who our single moms are? Do you know our sisters who are single? Protecting them involves knowing them, praying for them, and meeting their needs. Sometimes their material needs through finances. Sometimes it's through care. So that's the first way in which we protect them. We protect them by knowing them. Second, Paul provides these qualifiers, the, the need to filter. And he says that it begins with character. See, when you enroll them, it consists of a widow who's at least 60. What he's saying is maturity matters. Character matters. And then he begins to unpack this list. 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. So if she was married, then she was faithful. He continues. And having a reputation for good work. She is known for the way in which she serves the church and others. Saying it this way. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. Here's what Paul is saying. Character matters, and you're going to see that character displayed in the way in which she lives. And when we look back at her life, how was it in the way she raised her kids? 
Was she present? Was she available? Was she faithful to her children? When it came to hospitality, it's not just the term here. It's not just welcoming strangers. It's being ready whenever the moment calls for being hospitable. Like some of us won't even open up our our apartment or our house to even say to let someone in. These women over here are ready to go. They're on call, ready to show hospitality. Additionally, he says that they have washed the feet of the saints. In other words, that they have served the church just like Jesus has served the church. That they cared for the afflicted. That they were ready to pray for and care for those who needed it. That they were committed to every good work. That little phrase is that they weren't afraid to get their hands dirty and to dive into the lives of others who needed the gospel and care. These women were some serious godly theologians. One commentator says it this way. Not on the screen. I'll I'll go slow as to not speed up this section. It is clear from this account that the widows had a distinctive identity within the early Christian church. There were large numbers of them, and by the third century, they formed an official order in the church. These widows gave themselves to prayer, nursed the sick, cared for the orphans, visited Christians in prison, evangelized to pagan women, and taught female converts in preparation for baptism. The church is to care for our widows. We do so by protecting them, and we do so by knowing them, and we do so by looking at their character and their life, their doctrine and their life, I should say. In short, here's what I would say. This is what I was thinking of. Women's ministry matters. This weekend, our ladies, many of you are here, who got back from our retreat in Concan up in central Texas. And uh, man, that was an encouragement to me as I got some pictures, just seeing the women encourage one another in fellowship with one another. It matters. It's not just this cool trend. Moving forward, we protect our widows through needs and their character. And the question might be, well, you know, why is that important? Well, Paul now adds some qualifiers concerning younger widows. So he goes to say in verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. So he says, hey, when you're going to care for widows, the way you're going to protect them is by, yes, you're going to have these qualifiers, you're going to look at their character, you're going to look at their life, you're going to look at their doctrine, but also when it comes to some of our younger widows, I'm going to tell you to refuse to enroll them. You're like, well, why? And he goes, I got, I got a couple of things that you need to know. And so the first thing is when he uses the word passions, right, it, it sounds as though he's saying that their desire to marry is a bad thing. And that's not what Paul is saying at all. But what he's addressing, rather, is that sometimes younger widows, younger women, get so caught up in wanting to be married that they abandoned their faith. The word faith isn't so much salvific as it is another word for pledge. In other words, that uh, they have been receiving support from the church and they have committed to serving the church, but because they are so filled with the desire to marry that they forfeit their pledge and go get married. And Paul is saying, like, if you're going to go get married, go get married, but don't make a commitment or a vow to the church. And so if you're not married, here's what I want you to know. If you're not married, don't worry so much about not being married. Because when and if you get married, you're still not going to be fulfilled. Jesus must be your first passion. And when that gets in the way, that is, our desire gets so hot and heated and elevated above Jesus, when that gets in the way, we lose sight of him and compromise. And that might be the concern that Paul has with the women in Ephesus. That they're so caught up in their desire to marry that not only have they forfeited their commitment to Christ, but they might be making compromises. Making unwise decisions, or completely leaving the faith. 
These individuals, Paul says, incur condemnation, not because they want to get married, but because they lose sight of Christ and their commitment to Him. Another warning about younger widows is that there is uh, the possibility of them being provided by the church, and not only do they not serve the church, but they think it's a free ride. So Paul continues, verse 12, they incur condemnation. Verse 13, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. And so what he's saying is, if you enroll younger widows, what may happen is that as they're receiving some funding, they might think of it as a free ride. And so they're going to live off of the church, and rather than serving the church, what they're going to end up doing, what could end up happening, is that they could be gossips, and then they could be idols, or they could, they could uh, pursue idleness. And idleness isn't just laziness. It's an unwillingness to put in any effort. And idleness destroys the soul. It weakens every other aspect of our spiritual life. When it comes to gossip, instead of conversations that are directed towards encouraging those in need, it's really about just talking behind their backs. And you know Christianese and you know Christian culture, that when it comes to small groups or community groups or gospel communities, whatever it is that we call them, sometimes we'll get together and we'll say, hey, pray for so-and-so, let me tell you what's going on. And rather than addressing the need, you add your spin to it with some Christianese to justify gossip. Gossip destroys others because it destroys relationships, and it forfeits a culture of honor. As Paul closes this section, he says, if these things are ignored, if we do not protect the culture or a culture of honoring our widows, then it destroys the reputation of the church. He closes this section. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, actually, let me go back up. Verse 15, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. See, when some of these younger women were taking advantage of the church, they're life, their character was put on display. How so? In their case, many of them uh, fell into temptation. Many of them forfeited the faith. When it comes to widows, particularly our single moms, particularly our mothers, I want to add this reminder. Mothers who are home with our children are engaged in spiritual warfare. A mom's work is difficult, and it's thankless many of those times, and it is filled with frustration and temptation. And so, ladies, especially those of you who are moms, thank you for all that you do. Thank you for all that you do. When you teach your children the way of God, you not only honor God, you defy Satan. The home is where the gospel begins. Thank you. The culture of honor toward our widows is to be protected by the church. Next, Paul addresses a culture of honor towards pastors. This is verse, verses 17 to 25. Uh, I'll move through this one fairly quickly. It's always a little awkward for me to teach on how you should honor me. Um, so it's passages like this that uh, they're usually better suited when there's a guest preacher. Uh, but nevertheless, here we go. We're almost, we're, almost, we're almost done. Paul addresses that we honor our pastors in at least three ways. Compensation, accusation, or I should say accountability, and ordination. Compensation, accountability, and ordination. All right. 
Beginning in verse 17, Paul opens, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. All right, here we go. First, here's what Paul is saying. The ministry of preaching and teaching is one of great work. Not only in its gravity, but in its process, in its energy, in its consistency. The labor of preaching and teaching requires a lot of thought, a lot of time, and most of the time it's uh, not always encouraging and sometimes thankless. I'm not knocking it, I'm just telling you what other people say. Anyway. In this section, Paul quotes both Deuteronomy and he quotes Jesus in saying that the teaching pastor ought to get paid what he needs. Not a jet, not a life of luxury, but what he needs. That's ultimately what Paul is saying. When he writes about double honor, it's not just compensation that he's talking about, but honor through encouragement and respect. Let me just tell you this. One of the best ways that you can honor a pastor is by encouraging them. One of the best ways in which you can honor a pastor is by respecting them. One of the best ways in which you can honor a pastor is by making sure that their needs are met. And so that's the first one, compensation. The second one is accountability. In this, pastors are not immune to sin or accountability. Pastors are not above the law, but there is a way to address a pastor when in sin. See, when someone brings an accusation or accuses a pastor, and let's say they're wrong about their accusation, it still affects the reputation of that pastor. And the truth is, pastors are more exposed to slander, insults, gossip, and discouragement more than other godly teachers. People don't always see the behind the scenes. And so Paul tells us how it's done. And he says the way in which you're going to address a pastor who is in sin is with witnesses. Now, of course, the hope is that repentance would be done first and in private when something is brought to a pastor. But he goes on to say if they're still in sin, in other words, if it's ongoing and they are unrepentant to their sin, it is to be done with witnesses for the sake of restoration and as an example to the other pastors so that they would stand in fear. Look at the text. Verse 20, As for those who persist in sin, that is unrepentant sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest, the rest are the other elders, may stand in fear. So it is both for the sake of restoration, but it is also so that the other pastors, so that the other leaders would stand in fear. In other words, if there is sin going on, man, they best confess it and repent of that sin lest they too incur judgment or condemnation. He continues. Where are we? I'm already lost. Sorry. He goes on to say, verse 21, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Paul is saying, I'm telling you to do this. God and the angels back me up. I'm telling you to do this. And this wasn't something that Paul is just writing as he's like sitting on some kind of high horse. Paul did this to Peter. In Galatians 2, we see Paul call Peter out in front of other people because the gospel was at stake. So Paul isn't just saying this because he thinks it sounds like a good system or a good process. And this may have been difficult for Timothy but he's to do it. He continues, do not be, excuse me, uh, yeah, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So be alert. Keep a lookout for yourself. No, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent 
ailment. So Paul tells Timothy, you know what might help you out? It might be a little bit of wine as you address this, as you teach others, as you raid the others. You might, might need a little bit of wine. Why? Because it's going to help out with your digestive issues. It might help out in a way where, man, you got all those nerves and all that anxiety. Man, it might help out there. It might even reduce your blood pressure. Right? Paul is saying, don't join in on their sin. Keep yourself pure. So we looked at uh, compensation, we looked at accountability, and now ordination. Once more, Paul says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Pastors develop other pastors and leaders in the church. I'll be honest, this, is, this season, moving here to Valley Community, as wonderful as it has been and uh, oftentimes challenging and sometimes frustrating, one of the things that I've learned is that I need to spend more time developing and spending more time developing leaders and pastors. It was really cool 15 years ago when I had a little bit more time to uh, haul speakers and TVs and lift them with the other guys, and that was great for this season, but the idea now is that we have men and women who faithfully love and serve our church, and as a result, it's kind of a bittersweet, it's been a bittersweet season where I really still want to do that because I think my gift is lifting, right? (laughs) But the idea here is Uh, I actually need to spend time developing other pastors, developing other deacons, developing other leaders. Not only will our church flourish in health, but you will be cared for even more so by just me. So Paul says, don't be hasty. So that's part of the reason we don't rush to install pastors or deacons or other leaders. Why? Because it could be a bad mistake. It could backfire especially if they are ill-equipped, immature, and not tested. And that tends to be some of the things that are forfeited in development when the needs of the church rise, physical needs, service needs, all of these different things. When they come up, people, pastors, and other leaders tend to freak out because they're thinking, oh my gosh, all of these needs need to be met, and this person is available, and that person has been around. Let's just make them a leader or a pastor, and that's doing it too quickly. And so Paul instead tells Timothy, hey, there's going to be four kinds of people in your church. These are the four kinds of people that I want you to look out for that you're going to spend time with, and then those you might not spend some time with. This is verses 24 to 25. He says, the sins of some people are conspicuous. In other words, he says, the first person you're, the first kind of person you're going to see in your church is the one whose sin is obvious and blatant, and it's out in the open. Rebuke them, but you're probably also not going to develop them. The second one, he says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. He says, be careful, be watchful, make sure that you're looking at your congregants' life and doctrine, because if they are in sin, it will be brought to light at some point. The third person, he says, So, also good works are conspicuous. There are going to be those individuals in your church that they are serving the church. Everybody can see them serving the church. Their good works are obvious. Paul is saying, hey, spend some time with them. And then finally, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. There are going to be some who are doing good works behind the scenes that are just hidden. And if that's you, thank you. I promise you're going to be noticed. But Paul is saying, man, maybe those are like deacon roles, the in- individuals who are like the ninjas of the church who are always doing things behind the scenes. <clears throat> we create a culture of honor for our pastors by compensating them well, holding them accountable and allowing them to develop other pastors and leaders. And finally, we cultivate a culture of honor by honoring our employers. This is chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Paul writes, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. The bond servants or the slavery that Paul is talking about is different than American slavery. And so we're going to compare it to employment or if you're under the submission of someone, a teacher, a parent, so on. And so Paul says, 
The reason we honor our employers, the reason that we honor those who we're under submission to, is so that we would not bring reproach to the gospel. That we would not bring the gospel and our witness into questioning. He says it this way, so that the name of God and the teaching, Paul's always worried about the teaching, right? Why? Because what we believe shapes how we live. The name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. See, when we honor our employers or those we're in submission to, we live out the gospel in front of them. And I get it, that might be really challenging for many. But what's on display is the gospel. What is, who is being glorified isn't you, but the Lord. And then Paul goes on in verse 2. He says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service and believers and beloved. He's saying if your employer or whoever it is you're submitted to, if they're a Christian, you have even more reason to honor them. Therefore, don't try to shortcut them. Don't ask for a handout. Honor them. And I think oftentimes this is where Christians, sometimes we're in conversation and say, oh man, my boss is a Christian, therefore there's like some flexibility. No, we want to make sure that we honor them even more. When we live out the gospel in front of our employers, whether they're Christians or not, we bring about honor to them and we glorify God. And so in conclusion... Here's here's where we would end. Church, are you honoring Jesus? You see, Jesus showed up and was not honored. When he entered into human history, he shows up and was not honored. Jesus did all of these things that we looked at. He did all of these perfectly. He honored his family. He honored his brothers and sisters. That is that Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. And in the Gospels, he goes on to say, those who do the will of God are my brothers and my sisters. Jesus honors widows by telling John while he's on the cross to take care of his mom. Jesus is the ultimate pastor, the chief shepherd, the perfecter of preaching and teaching. All I do is repeat what he has said. Jesus made himself a slave. The one who ruled all became a servant to all. A people who honor the king, who honor Jesus, who went to a cross in shame, dying in our place. That is, dying in our place, those who have dishonored God and others. This Jesus honored us by dying in our place and for our sin, rising from the grave in all honor, and is coming back to make his honor known. Therefore, let us honor him now and others, especially those in the household of faith. So Christian, do you honor our older saints? Do you honor the brothers and sisters? Is your cultivation is your participation in a culture of honor is it hindered by bitterness is there sin that you have not confessed that is actually hindering you from cultivating this culture of honor let me invite you to repent of your sin to put it on the table And perhaps this afternoon you need to go to a brother and sister and confess your sin to them and repent. Do so. Don't delay. Don't wait until dinner. Don't wait until tomorrow. Do it today. And if you're not a Christian, we are honored that you are here. You didn't have to be here at five in the afternoon. But we hope that you are honored by us. We want you to know Jesus. We want you to live like Jesus. And God has made a way for you to do that through faith and repentance. Church, a culture of honor begins with how we view God and then is displayed to one another 
and those outside the church. Let's pray. God, you honored us by meeting us where we are through the sending of your son who died in our place and for our sin. This entire culture of honor is based on your character, not a cultural trend. And so we praise and thank you. God, we confess that we do not always consider you or one another when it comes to a culture of honor. Often we are caught up in our needs and in our own desires that we take honor for granted. Would you humble us this afternoon so that honor would begin with you, your character, and your work? then, Lord, may honor be poured out into the life of our church through love and respect for one another and those who don't know you. Lord, as we transition into communion and we respond to your word through the Lord's Supper, God, would you meet us where we are like you always do? As we prepare to approach your table, give us the strength of your grace to come before you humbly and confidently to cleanse our soul by confessing our sin to you. Jesus alone is our only Savior and Redeemer. Father, may we come before your table repentant yet believing, receptive and in humility. May we receive the bread and the cup and not only remember the work of Jesus, but may we rejoice at the work of Jesus in us as we wait for his return. In this fellowship with one another and with Jesus, may we cling to his promises. So, Father, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this afternoon. Let me ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.